Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the House of Pot. I'm Kaveh. And I'm Lizzie. And if this is your first time listening, we're a medical... Sort of. ...podcast where we try to discuss medicine and health in a relatable way. And we will answer questions you may not feel comfortable asking your doctor and definitely won't bring up to your friends. I'm super excited about our upcoming guest, Dr. Haval Mohammed Kelly. He's a cardiologist who's finishing up his fellowship at Emory... And you can find him all over the internet, a recent Washington Post article that we'll put on our website. You can watch his TED Talk. Um, Again, find him anywhere, everywhere. He's wonderful. He's an inspiration in his activism and does all of this in his spare time as a cardiologist. So he is kicking our asses. The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. of pod i'm kave i'm lizzie and i'm joe guys how are we great we're very good um what i'd like to do today is go right to an email let's maybe consolidate a couple of them maybe do a couple of poop questions this is a very exciting topic for kave and i yes we have a couple of specific very poop specific questions this will be another segment on the show called poop specific questions mm-hmm. um so this is The first question uh, from a caller, unidentified, a random listener, and it goes as follows. I think it's quite common for people to only be able to poop at home as opposed to work or anywhere else. Do you know if that's a fact? And if so, is there a reason for this? Joe, where do you poop? (laughs) 
is it a preference question or is it, I don't understand the question, I guess. There's some people who can't poop in public places. Is how can't I'm or this. just don't want to. It's a combination. Uh, it's probably, yeah, it's really a thin I, line, I think right? The answer to me is obvious. In a public bathroom like a McDonald's or a gas station, they're usually, you know, not as clean as your house mm-hmm. um, toilet. I mean, that's... Yeah, right? we all, we all have know. that. I think this is something that maybe as a kid you're taught or you feel that you mm. don't feel as comfortable. And then if that behavior continues and you start to avoid these things, like being at school or being at work and avoiding public bathrooms, then it becomes sort of a you have to avoid pooping in a public space. And that, that can be a really sort of have negative consequences emotionally. Yeah. Physically, maybe for stuff. Sure, there is there is like a bit of a mental barrier. Just like some people have a hard time peeing in public. Well, men can talk about the urinal phenomenon. Yeah, I'm sure there's an actual like scientific term for that. Maybe we'll look it up during a break. Peeing in public, like Like, you know, some people like you have no problem whipping it out and peeing wherever we are. This I know about. This is something I love about you. This is too much information. But some people don't. Some people are like, we'll get to a urinal and they have a hard time going. There's other people around. It's weird. Really? Sometimes they have to like hear other people. I've never heard of this. Well, there's like um, there's a component of like what people call like performance anxiety, and you know, men in urinals. Like I don't know clearly, but there's etiquette. Like if there's five urinals and you're at one, you're not supposed to to go. You're not supposed to go right next to the guy. That is not cool, right? I mean, you guys, you Uh, guys teach me about, and then we'll then we'll go back to poop. That is true. It is when you go to like a row of urinals and there's like a bunch that you can go to. You go to one at the end. And the next guy who comes in, like, picks the urinal next to you. That is off-putting. It's creepy. It's like if you're in the movie theater and you're all alone, someone comes and sits right next to you when there's, yeah. like, 100 seats they could pick. It's it's weird. But you do get, I mean, at this point in my life, I could care less. I'm, I'm there to do what I got to do. Yeah. I have to take care of it. I think there is the similar sort of phenomenon, like you said, though, with pooping. I think some people have a harder time pooping in public. I know personally, when I was a kid, I was like, I had a really hard time pooping like in places that were not home. Yeah. And I remember specifically there was like one point in like junior high that I was like, this is, I can't wait. This one's coming. This right. is happening. And so I went and that kind of broke it for me. But I think this is true. I think some people have a hard time with it. I don't think that's yeah. too uncommon. And the only time it becomes a problem is if let's say you're traveling or let's say you're at a conference or something and you're around and you really have to go, people end up holding it in and you really can affect the musculature. And there's a whole mm-hmm. process to your brain recognizing the need to er, to poop and then you going and sitting and pooping. And then if you are suppressing that, you're actually sort of affecting your central, like your brain. And it's called the enteric nervous system. The nervous system of your gut is as complicated as your brain. And there's some sort of cycle, some process that can get totally disturbed. And we see a lot of young, healthy patients who have, you know, a negative consequence where they're feeling they're holding it in so much, then they get like constipation and their pelvic floors muscles, their pelvic floor muscles are just yes. not as coordinated. When you hear the call of the alvine, mm-hmm. you must answer. Alvine. A-A-L-V-I-N-E. What does that mean? mean? It means pertaining to the intestines. Oh my God, I don't know that. The call of the alvine. So if you... He means the call of nature. If if you you don't want to be a mega dork about it. Thank you, you, Lizzie. If you hear that from your body, you should take it. I mean, find yourself a bathroom. Try and work around this if you can. I don't have any great advice for someone who has... It's just fear don't, of pooping in public. It's really don't avoid if you really need. That's a great advice. If you need to go, go. try to go. And the, here's what I would say. What are the reasons why you wouldn't want to go? Is it a embarrassing because you don't want to 
poop in a public place because other people are around, you should recognize that everyone does that mm-hmm. and that you're not the only one and whatever's coming out of you is probably not half as gross as the guy next to you, so don't <laughs> worry. Is it because you don't think it's clean? That's true. Outside toilets can be dirty, but you can take care of that. You bring can find bring your way. wet wipes with you. You could find your way to put down enough you know, toilet seat covering. Um, I'll tell you this. There's This is a little bit off subject, but kind of on subject. Nothing annoys me more about public toilets than the overly eager automatic sensor Oh my God, I hate that. I like to put down a nice little cover. I I get down my sheet and then maybe like one or two extra strands just to cover all areas. And then usually by the time I'm like perfectly set up, that thing flushes and (laughs) then I start all over. I hate that. It's also awful because like what if you're sort of, as as a woman sometimes when we we pee, we squat. And like sometimes that sensor just goes off like before we're done. It's, It's awful. Do you ever get that splash? I do, and it's really disgusting, and I don't actually want to talk about it. It's like makes me. That's one thing. I'm yeah. told I can poop anywhere, and Kave and I've talked about this. That this, I won't get too graphic, but using a toilet at work is very gratifying. I immediately think like, oh, I don't have to like worry about clogging my <laughs> own toilet at home. Because the hospital has those industrial strength strong ones. <laughs> I'm just like, I just, I love it. It's like wonderful. Can we? Tra- so, so on that note, the second question we have is: Is there an etiquette for pooping at work? I always do a mid shit flush, but is that necessary? At work, no, not at all. Um, oh no. And but then, I, go ahead. Sorry. No, that was it. Well, I have a take on that. So yeah, I think there's a little etiquette. Um, there's nothing worse than the loud pooper next to you, and you know what I mean. You mean the, grunting or the no, sound of the just the, the latches? You know, I'm not gonna make the sound, but you sit there and all of a sudden it sounds like World War Three next what, what, to you. What can you do about that? Well, you can you can control it so it goes out a little slower. That's what I do. No. Or you could just let it blast. Well, as Kavi said, let Alvine do its work. But what happens if you it's have like the chipmunk. fear? What happens if that's your fear? You're embarrassed. Well, the other point. I would say, I would say, listen, anyone who's going to judge you for the sound of your pooping is subhuman. I mean, this is, this is what happens. Okay. People poop. Everyone does it. It's going to happen unless you're purposely trying to like gross people out. Don't worry about it, man. Go relax. Yeah. Let that bowel do what's work. Use, use your, um, use your hand, your phone, not your hand, Whoa. use your phone, your smartphone, play some music. Play some light jazz, if you will. <laughs> in, the, in the public bathroom? That won't I mean, good. I've never done oh, that. But the, the purpose what? of the mid-shit flush is not to it, it's it's not to lessen the sound. It's the smell. Right. Yeah. Well, but at work, you don't need to do that. I have to but say, at if, someone's house, I would. Yeah, I think that's that's good advice, Joe. I think if you're pooping at work and it's like a many stalls, you know, do your business. Get out of there. If and you're at someone's house, I think a mid-shit flush. I, yeah. I appreciate that that she wrote this this uh, email. I wrote mid-shit flush. Um, I think that's appropriate I at somebody's house. I thought it was a guy until you said. Yeah. She, what about no, this? Do you ever been in a bathroom and, and someone, that one person just answers their cell phone while taking a shit? That's a, against yeah, the etiquette, that, right? Yeah, that does seem weird. I agree. I I've agree. That's, that's weird because then you are forcing people into your conversation. Yeah, that's the only reason. I don't yeah. think the, you know, we all bring our cell phones with us everywhere. I think there are probably filthy objects no matter how you slice it and dice it. But uh, nobody needs to hear, just like at a right. restaurant, I don't right. need to hear your conversation. So these emails are wonderful. They bring up excellent points. Thank you for sending them. One last thing. Is there another one? I really like this topic because uh, yeah. I got a lot of feedback. I have a lot of pet peeves. <laughs> Joe's really excited. The uh, worst thing you can do when taking a crap in any bathroom is not to flush and to leave the uh, the covers on. Oh, no, on. that's uncouth. That happens. Uncouth. That happens. And then there's other people who even get out of the stall, and when they go to wash their hands, they do this. Shh. <laughs> 
one second and then they walk out. Yeah, it's pretty gross. It's pretty yeah. gross. Anyway, actually, once this still haunts me to this day. I remember in medical school, we were there late and studying for a test, and the building was pretty much closed down except for the students who were there studying. And I went in to use the bathroom, and there in the toilet was just one giant log. I'm sorry for the for the listener out there, the genteel for the genteel listener. I apologize. Um, and there was no evidence of any sort toilet of wiping. Paper. <laughs> no evidence of any wiping. It just sat there. Oh, and well, I even if it went was to one go of those peek. Hard ones. It doesn't matter. I don't care how hard it is. At least try. Give it like that perfunctory wipe. Yeah. Joe, you're yeah. upset that people don't wash your hands long enough, but you're okay with not wiping your ass. That's a conflict. No. I don't Someone just dropped one and ran. There's and a, that, it one, still haunts me. Why did that just, person you know, do that? As a woman in a stall where you know people have their periods, right. I can probably beat all your stories, but I won't go into that because this mm. is a GI focus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Joe, what's your story? One out of a hundred poops is that one where it just comes out perfectly hard and you just know it's not going to require any wiping. Someone should do one wipe, a one wipe at least. Oh, you have to test one it. Wipe. Come on. Yeah, this, of I've never had this conversation. But one out of a hundred, yeah, you get it. lucky and well, you're done. But you got to do a test. Just I so agree. you know, and the hand washing, I believe in it. Um, yeah, me too. But Correct. how deep are your hands in your poop? Every time you go, that you need uh, to wash it. Smell close your fingers. Enough. You wash afterwards. Them. Just, just wash Ew. them. Don't smell them. Just wash Trust them. Me. Just uh, listen, people. People, assume the worst and wash your hands. Do yeah. you know how much disease in this world, oh, yeah. in this life, has been caused I, by people not washing their hands I after they poop? I, just wash them. I think hepatitis on a daily. A actually, right? Tons sure? of hepatitis. Yeah. I. <laughs> that's probably not as true as you think, but I think washing your hands in general is a wonderful thing. We we touch money, we shake hands, we touch banisters and subways and cars, you know. A place is filthy, but yeah. poop per se, I don't know that your hand is super... I, I, I believe in it. I do it. But I think that maybe um, you not wiping after you poop is worse. Okay, thank you for that email. Very poop-centric episode so far. Uh, coming up next, we have a great guest. We have Haval Muhammad Kelly. He's got a great story. Joe, I think you have to take off, right? Totally, bum. Really wanted to be here for this interview, but uh, I've got some other plans I'm committed to. LARPing? Exactly. Live action role play. Look it up. Stick around. With us today is Haval Mohammed Kelly, um, a Syrian refugee who fled to Germany and came to America a few days after 9-11 and went from dishwasher and toilet cleaner to a physician. Um, and you have this mission to preach kindness and be an ambassador and a mentor to refugees wherever you can, particularly in your home state of Georgia. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got on this path and what made you want to pursue medicine in particular? Oh, yeah. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Uh, it's an honor. I uh, I mean, where do I start? It's, uh, it's like presenting a case of a patient, actually, more than <laughs> my that's, life. That's complicated. I know. Why yeah. don't you start with uh, Germany? Yeah. Why don't you start when how you end up in Germany and what that was like? Yes, yeah, sir. So I'm I'm a Kurd from Syria, and my father was a lawyer, and you know, practicing lawyer, and he got oppressed by the Syrian government due to being a Kurd, which is an ethnic group that is scattered through Iran, Syria, Turkey, and Iraq. And in Syria, we my father was arrested and tortured and released, and his friends told him, "You gotta leave. 
the country, if next time they arrest you, you're not going to be able to uh, stay or live anymore. So pretty much like we left our life as a middle class family. Of a sudden, next thing I know, we are in a refugee camp in Germany. I was 11 years old. Uh, you know, we were like sharing bathroom with everyone on the same floor. It was a pretty big shock. We were placed in a small town called Hershat, where we used to live in Aleppo, which was a couple million people in Syria. And now we're in a small town of a few thousand, where we were, we were the only very few refugees who didn't look like the Germans. Uh, it was tough. For six years, we lived there. And every six months, we had to reapply for asylum, almost similar to the DACA people here. We mm -hmm. were applying for refugee status, but we were not accepted. We were at the mercy of the government. And then the church over there told us you could apply to Canada or the U.S. as a refugee and see if you got accepted. So we tried with the U.S. because it was harder. And after two years of extreme vetting, and I mean going back and forth yeah. from the embassy, got almost all my vaccination three times. So I have so many autoimmune <laughs> antibodies. You're immune to so, rabies. Yeah. So, and then we, you know, we heard the first, thing that ever made us feel comfortable since leaving Syria, say, welcome to America, you know? And we finally thought now we have a place where we could build a home. It's funny to talk to uh, refugees who come here, and even with all the problems that we're having here with immigration and all the controversy about, you know, people trying to make it into our country now, it's, it's still a place people want to be. It's still a place that people want to come to because there's still that hope for at least that chance there's at least the hope that you could become a meaningful part of society and you're clearly have proved that so how from from that beginning where you came over and you moved here did you get to it to medicine i think i became a doctor not for the common reason that many people decide when they one day like you know see a physician i want to help people i treated like medicine as my fifth language so I speak, you know, Kurdish mother tongue, Arabic, because I was in Syria and German. And I, you know, when I came here, I started speaking English. And I learned that uh, medicine is like a language. No matter how you leave the country, no matter who you oppressed, is a skill that you cannot lose. And it's something also helping the people at the same time. But what happens when we came to the U.S., we, we thought we were not going to be able to come because 9-11 happened. But then we got a call from the embassy saying you got three days to leave the country, either now or never. Next thing we know, we landed in Atlanta, September 25th. And here we are in the clocks in a small town in the south in Georgia. And it was hard because I was 18 years old. We didn't leave our home for two days because we were afraid we we're going to be harassed being Muslim, watching mm -hmm. these images on TV in Germany. But the next thing, what happens is, honestly, was when these people knocked on our door. These white people were knocking on our door, and we thought they were part of the CIA. And I'm like, why these people are coming here? We are Muslims. But they were members of, of the Southern Old Episcopal Church who really came and welcomed us. And I think that showed me that this country is different from any other place we've been to. Mm -hmm. But think about it, like, here's a Muslim refugee family came after 9-11 in the South and getting welcomed by these Southern Christian. Yeah. That we knew there's something different. And I think that was, that gave us the comfort to become who we want to become. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think intelligent only or a hard work 
made us achieve where we want to be. My family is just a product of the indirect and direct act of kindness of Americans. Mm-hmm. And you again, you talk about that on the TED Talk about how you feel, I guess, grateful and indebted to the community that accepted you and you want to give back. So in my mind, you know, maybe for me, medicine is a sort of a way to give a little bit. And you also volunteer your time, right, on in clinic, in free clinics as well, despite being a busy cardiology fellow. Yeah, I feel like there's a saying my mom used to always say to me, it's like, whoever taught you a letter, you owed him a book. And we felt like me and my brother, my brother also is a general surgery resident in East Tennessee. We feel like is the best way to give back is to become a meaningful part of the society and have a skill like medicine to help the poor and unserved. Because I watched my parents struggle with healthcare when we came to the U.S. My mom was, you know, 40-something-year-old, didn't have insurance. She had a part-time job. And I remember we was always hoping she doesn't get sick just for a simple thing like a bronchitis. Yeah. And now with this free clinic, I could treat bronchitis almost for free. Mm-hmm. It's just me seeing the patient, giving a prescription with minimal cost, you know. I'm able to pretty much, I'm just taking care of people like my mom and dad for free. I, mean, you, when you're, I don't feel like I'm doing anything special. I'm really just returning the favor. Well, it is kind of special, man. I mean, uh, it's hard enough to get into medical school in this country. It's hard enough to get into cardiology fellowship at a good place like you've done, particularly coming from what you've had to deal with, doing the refugee thing, coming here, working in high school every night as a dishwasher, and now being a, a fellow at the hospital that's like a block away from where you were washing dishes, it's a, it's a big step, and it's not easy to do. It's really impressive. But let me ask you, when you're treating patients in, your, uh, when you're treating patients in the hospital, do you find yourself still running across patients who look at you skeptically or who look at you and, and see, um, see maybe just a, a refugee or you worry that they see you as, as a threat? Do you have to win over patients, do you feel? Or do you feel at this point, now that you're a doctor, that doesn't really exist anymore? Uh, you know, since the, you know, the nomination of President Trump and seeing the rise of anti-immigration sentiment, I felt like I need to stand up and speak up for refugee in a way to show us we are an investment in the society. I, I'm not going to be like the defensive, aggressive person pointing finger and because I can't fight hate with aggression. Mm-hmm. I have to take that energy and show them a different way of looking at things. And that's something I do right now. I show Americans and people who don't know refugees, here we are, the refugees, we're part of the society, we're here to serve this country. And that opens the door to discussion, you know. I remember I had a patient one time told me, he's like, oh, doc, where are you from? I was like, you know, from Syria. And he's like, are you a Muslim? He's like, yeah. And he said, he's like, yeah, you know, a lot of Muslims are great, but 10% are terrorists. So most people get angry. I thought, I was like, Sarah, I think your math skills are terrible. He said, <laughs> he said why? I was like, there's 1.4 billion Muslim. 10% is about 140 million terrorists. That's a lot of terrorists we try to like fight. He's like, well, maybe 1%. I'm like, that's 14 million. He's like, you know, you're right. My numbers are wrong. I was like, well, Doc, you're one of the good ones. 
I was like, if you know any of the bad one, I'm going to report you to the FBI. <laughs> That's right. So then he, then he started thinking like, you know, you're right. I don't know any of the bad one. I just watched TV. I was like, yeah. But now you know a Muslim like me. And it's very hard to hate something that you know. I think most people have ignorance. The hate is based on ignorance. It's not based on something they know. I mean, if you have a neighbor who's Muslim or a refugee, it's very hard for you to hate that person once you right. know them. Well, you know, I think uh, when people voice their prejudice toward a group, they're expecting that defensive, aggressive response that I think feeds more into the hate. You're like, see, I was right. You're getting angry. and yeah. But when you take it from a different way that they didn't expect and you start a discussion with them, it takes a lot of self-control too i understand that but i think being physician we learn that through our training to not take anything personal right and i think i use that power of our training is to when i talk to patients about non-medical items and you know things like anti-immigration i use that opportunity to investigate more and listen and then i think people trust us like you know as physician we have that power i think if more of us are involved in social justice and in the community we could change a lot of minds because people don't take our opinion as bias of like if you're a politician or a businessman. We have this unique thing about being a physician that people just trust your opinion. Right. And I use that power in the public. You first came to my attention because of your ambassador work, for lack of a better word. You're not a, you're, I don't think you're actually technically an ambassador. Um, that's not a title, but that's what you've been doing out there, sort of on micro and macro sort of levels, meeting people and trying to um, show them a different perspective of what it's like to be uh, a Muslim immigrant to this country. And uh, where I first heard about you was in a Washington Post article, uh, like uh, June, early June, where uh, you had sort of hooked up with this guy named Arnold, Mike, uh, Arnold Michaelis. I think that's mm -hmm. how you say his name. He's a really interesting guy. He's a recovered uh, neo-Nazi skinhead who's sort of become this Buddhist who like uh, like a Nazi whisperer or something? He sort of runs this underground railroad for like people in the KKK or neo Nazis that are trying to get out of that life. And you somehow got connected with him to help sort of be an ambassador to some of those people who hadn't met uh, a, a Muslim person or or needed to meet someone like you. How did you get connected with him in the first place? Oh, we we both were speaking at the Carter Center. And it was the Islamophobia conference. An interesting part, there were a lot of scholars who were Muslims who spoke about Islamophobia. And he was the only person who spoke about a community intervention. It's like going to a cardiology conference where everyone talks about heart attack, but nobody's talking about the treatment or prevention. Mm -hmm. And he was the only person who did that. I was like, oh my God, I love this guy, even though he looks so much different than me. He came there <laughs> with all this tattoo on his body, Hawaiian shirt, and everyone's wearing a suit. But me and him became really good friends because we had the same understanding. The way to fight Islamophobia, yes, we could educate people about it, but we have to find a way to bring the communities together. We, could, we can't just keep talking about the problem all day long. Yeah. So he said, I know this guy who is two hours away from here in Georgia. He in the process of leaving the KKK, but I think he needs to meet someone like you because he still has this anti-Muslim, anti-refugee sentiment. And I kind of thought about it. Okay, well, it must be a reason that this guy asked me to do that. Should I go drive and meet this guy two hours away from me and put my life at risk? But then I thought about it. Those people are more afraid of me than I'm afraid of them. Mm -hmm. If you look at the current, you know, I mean, sure. the news is 
I mean, so I took it as a challenge and I thought about it. I was like, if I, as a privileged, educated immigrant refugee, not going to stand up and speak up and know my rights, do I expect the Syrian refugee who came here two years ago to speak up for himself? Right. Do I expect the underprivileged immigrant to do that when they're struggling, washing dishes, working in gas stations? They don't have the power that I have. So if I don't do it, I don't expect the common man to stand up there. So I start talking to this guy over Facebook and then we start having conversation. And what I did is I let him speak 90% of the time. It's like listening to a patient and trying to find the reason and diagnosis why they feel <laughs> this way. And eventually I caught on his understanding of what's going on. He was just angry. He was frustrated with life. He didn't know many Muslims. So we start talking and I decided to go visit him. So I went ended up visiting him and we, you know, I just showed him, I didn't even like read about how to, you know, how to fight hate or to read about like how to convert KKK members. I just treat him like a normal person. Like I would treat my friend. Is that part of the medical training you think? I think it's part of our training that we start listening to patients more and understand their the pain that they're having is not personal toward you. It's something more deeper from the history and background. Uh, and you need to show them a different face of what, of what they're hating. You hear over and over again these stories of hate and how someone reaches out and things improve and that it's clearly just misdirected anger, misdirected frustration, and people feel unheard, like they don't have a voice. And just with poor communication or education or, like you said, ignorance, manifest in ways that are just um, unproductive and obviously um, sometimes violent, you know, and um, what you're doing or this article again features just like your spirit, your generosity of spirit, which is, you know, something that we should all emulate, you know. Uh, something we've discussed a lot on our show is the importance of mentorship, uh, particularly in the medical setting and how important it is to have a mentor along the way of your, your training. And not only are you providing mentorship, it seems like, you know, when you're at these clinics, you're dealing with the community and you're reaching out to these, the refugees and the immigrants who don't speak English as well as you, or uh, don't have the opportunities as you, or when you're dealing with these people who are trying to expose themselves to new things like that Washington Post story. But what points in your life were mentorship important, particularly in regards to medicine? I mean, as I always say that, you know, is not only intelligence and hard work, which are a necessary part of success in medicine or anything in life, is knowing the fact that you made it this far because people came to your life and show you the way and helped you out. Once you recognize that, then you go back and want to be that person for others. That's something I learned early on when I came to the US, when I was washing dishes after a few years being in America, this guy reach out to me because you heard about me being a dishwasher, want to become a doctor. I don't know any doctor then. And he was this heart surgeon, Dr. Omar Latouf, who his daughter went to my brother's school and my brother mentioned to him and he called me. I was suspicious first, like why is this Middle Eastern doctor calling me? Is he trying to find out thing about my dad? Yeah. You know, like, right. you know, but he was a very genuine person who now we work together, Emery. I mean, he wow. mentored me. Not only he mentored me, I think mentorship is a one way. Sponsorship is the next level of mentorship. When you mentor someone and you invest in them, that's kind of, a, you know, a, a unique relationship because then you have a return in the future 
We published papers together. We traveled the world. We started our organization. So it's a win situation for him too. Mm-hmm. So when I mentor people, I feel the same way. I'm like, I'm investing in these young people in these communities. And I know in the end game, we're going to build this network and this powerhouse that could change America and serve others. So it's not just like writing a letter for someone. It's more like, okay, I wrote you a letter now, but next time you're going to do the same thing for someone else who's right. like you. Right. That's how you build, you pretty much build a network of what I call a constellation of mentors. Yeah. You know, well, we talked about it also on the show. It's not like any of your parents or immediate family were, were doctors in, you know, in Georgia or in Germany when you, you know, you were traveling for a long time and you have to see someone that you have a connection with or respect or admire. And it sounds like, yeah, he, helped mentor you and, and also gave you a piggyback over the over the front door. That's what she says. Brilliant is exactly what most people from underserved community they need. Like when I was in clocks and my neighbors were not doctors and nurses and nurse practitioner. How do I wake up one day in my life and say, I want to be a doctor? And that's what I do with my med student. I go to the schools and to the community and show them that you could be like us. Because when they see it, they believe it. And it's being present is the most powerful. And it's exactly what you said, is having someone in your life that you aspire to be. Yeah. So right now you're in your third year of cardiology fellowship. Is that correct? Yes. What's the plan from here? Are you going to uh, specialize? Are you going to start a private practice? What are you going to do? Oh, the future is, for me, is preventive cardiology. That's what I believe in now. That's the future of treating our disease. And my goal is to stay, hopefully, within the Emory system, to still be close to education and mentorship, and also serve my community. So I'm trying to work something out where I could still be a clinician, but also be a medical educator. Mm-hmm. I think I learned, honestly, the last two, three years of our current political time made me realize it's important for me because I'm so privileged and took the opportunity of being an American and advanced my American dream is to be able to go back in the community and 20, 30 years from now, tell my grandkids or kids, like, you know, I stood up in a in certain way that I can for the people who were being attacked and misjudged. I think it's amazing, man. It's really cool. To me, I, I love everyone should in this country love a good story like this where a refugee comes over and and works hard and achieves this sort of dream. It's, you know, I've told Lizzie this, I think, offline, but in a way, I think people like yourself are the most American. And it really bothers me when people sort of suggest anything otherwise. Because, you know, it's it's almost like, uh, if I were to make a analogy, it's to, like, think of the people you know who are religious. Like, who are the most hardcore religious people? The most hardcore religious people are usually the people who converted they're like the born again Christians are kind of like the mm-hmm. most hardcore. It's like people like yourself and my parents for that matter are like born again Americans, people who came over and they made the choice and they struggled hard. They didn't just happen to be born here. They, they came here with the goal. They worked hard and they made it happen. And they're the most American stories in some way. So I think it's great that you're sharing it with people. I think it's really great that you shared it with us. We really appreciate that. And it's wonderful that you can, you know, love America, be American and, um, and hold on to your culture and your values. You know, those things aren't mutually exclusive. And that's something that, you know, is, is very important in your, in your life and in your volunteer work and in your practice as a doctor. And, 
you know, it's a, it, it is, it's an inspiration. So thank you so much for coming and talking to us about your experiences. Uh, it's my pleasure. I mean, like I always say, like any interview I do or any speak engagement, I always say to people, I'm just, I never thought of my wildest dream coming to America after 9-11 that I will ever consider to be a talking point of any kind. <laughs> so I'm just feel like, I feel like honestly, I'm very lucky and blessed to be even on a platform and just speaking to you guys and sharing my story because I never thought like I was doing anything magnificent or special because I just feel like blessed and lucky to be able to serve. That's very humble. It's not luck. It's total work and you're, you know, you're doing it. So do you want to plug uh, one of these organizations that you're working for or uh, uh, honestly, that you created? I, one of the places that I love going there that is non-medical and that is like, I call it the century of inspiration and helping others, Refuge Coffee. Hmm. is this place that was founded by this wife of a pastor or priest and decided to hire a refugee to train them by making coffee and teach them English. And it's in Clarkson. I usually go there and grab coffee and just get inspired by the amount of works done in that place. Clarkston, and, Georgia. Yeah, Clarkson just called Refuge Coffee. And honestly, if you're ever in Atlanta, you should go check out the place. Like, it's one of the most diverse places in the country, but also the coffee shop. They have enough. They have. They always say you want space for cream. I'm like, there's enough space, cream, and love. Oh, <laughs> well, that's great, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If you uh, find your way over to San Francisco for a conference or something, you got to come here and uh, do the show live with us. Okay. I would love to. It's my honor. Thank you again for you guys doing doing amazing work, and I'm also excited to see doctor doing stuff besides just seeing Working. patient procedures. So it's amazing right. what you guys are doing. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. Quick reminder, if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area on September 8th, Saturday, the Resurrection Men is playing at Hotel Utah. Now, who are the Resurrection Men? It's a band filled with a bunch of people from the show, the House of Pod family. Uh, we'll all be there. It'll be a blast. Come out and join us. It starts at 9 o'clock. We're playing with a couple of our friends, and we look forward to seeing you there. Please make sure to like us on Facebook, review us on iTunes, and tell your friends to listen. You can email us at hopquestions at gmail.com or call us at 408-444-6623, and we are also now on Stitcher. All anecdotes and patient-related details have been changed with respect to date, sex, and certain details so that patient identification is not possible.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.